Welcome to another episode of the Explorer Podcast of Florida International University Student Podcast for the Creatively Curious. I'm your host, Julius Nunez. I'd like to have uh, Veronica and uh, Trisha. Uh, welcome to the Exploring Our Podcast. Hi, I'm Veronica. It's great to be here. Hi, thank you for having us. I'm Trisha. Uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, 18th century English gardens and, uh, and how William Kent created one of the greatest ones. Now, first, let's start off. 18th century English gardens differ from uh, most of our present day ones. They uh, would usually convey a more deeper meaning and more sophisticated message uh, as they basically had a greater, greater purpose than just pleasing senses. And, uh, and the most, uh, most present, most of the 18th century and even present day historians, philosophers, even coin a term known as uh, reading the garden, which is used when uh, people uh, walk through these landscapes, they they feel a more deeper presence than what is usually there. Hmm. Well, today we're going to be discussing one made by a certain arch- uh, certain architect and uh, landscape landscape artist known as William Kent, who worked on one in uh, still in the Stowe House in Buckingham. Hampshire. So uh, let's add a little bit more backstory to what we're going to be talking about. Uh, now, 18th century gardens uh, in England, these were a bit different as uh, they had a lack of flowers. Now, when you usually think of flowers, or uh, garden students think flowers, uh, lot, uh, no, uh, just some normal trees. Uh, well, these these gardens usually lack flowers. The these guys, these gardens, however, had trees, but they but the trees in these gardens relied or relied he- were reliable in that they in that these gardens relied heavily on the rectilinear patterns, uh, the sculpture, and the unnatural shape, shapes of these trees, as they were meant to uh, uh, to appear more artistic and more. Uh, Unique than the trees you usually see, like in your backyard or in certain other gardens. They usually appear the most well. They were well. They weren't like topiaries. They were more unique. Uh, they also, while they didn't possess flowers or mostly uh, most other other things we would associate with gardens, they uh, did possess uh, grottos, full, uh, more uh, foliaries and more uh, temples. And these uh, were important as they added more character to these gardens. Uh, the grottos were more or less to add more, more, uh, uh, add a more like, a, and temples in particular, these were to add more, more of an ancient feel to them. As with like, uh, their designs were meant to be inspired by like, some of the ancient Greek to make it more look like, more like a painting. The uh, this allowed them to carry more sophisticated meanings and to even like uh, as I said before, make it feel like you were traveling back in time. The character of these English gardens uh, showed uh, that man is uh, that the work of man is usually more important and more seen when it is individual, in distinguishable from nature. Basically, uh, 
rather than uh, uh, when uh, man is using nature to convey that uh, work. And uh, I believe this uh, was most likely inspired by a uh, landscape artist known as Francois Bellinger, who uh, was a major component in develop, who most likely was a major component in developing this form of art. Now, uh, but it, I believe it was mostly mastered with William Kent. William Kent was a leading architect um, of the early in Georgia, uh, Georgian, of the early in Georgian Britain era and lived during 1685 to 1748. He, designed, he was a major developer of sculptures, furniture, landscaping, metalwork, book illustration, book illustration, uh, you name it. He pretty much uh, worked, worked in that, uh, worked in that form of uh, illustration and uh, design. He studied in Rome and where he was named, where he was coined the term, the Signor, Signor of Italy, if I'm pronouncing it right. He arrived back in England during the transformation of British culture. Uh, this is usually around the time they discussed ideal ideas in journals and focused more on uh, changing and uh, advancing the middle class so to speak. Uh, by 1725, William uh, started like more of his design, uh, started on designing for interior building rather than just painting those interiors. He would work on, this is where he would work on more and more stuff. He, he would work on the design of the treasury and the horse guards uh, around, and uh, as well as other important buildings. It would even, uh, set up designs for the for Parliament House in around 1730. A very uh, unique theatrical structure, and uh, such as with uh, Berkeley Square, as well as his focus, he focused more on the Gothic style and Palladianism, which uh, uh, which was inspired by Palladino since he was in uh, Italy. This basically made him a very uh, uh, great founder of the Baroque design. Uh, during time, however, I think it uh, it's actually said that is it was where his gardening uh, ex expertise was where he was more allowed more creative freedom, as it allowed him to express more uh, of his artistic ideologies and freedoms than uh, than the stricter and uh, more critical and more severe uh, structure that came with architecture. He had uh, he actually done several gardens actually, uh, including the one that in Stowe, in the Stowe House in Buckinghamshire, which is known as the Elysium Fields. That's which I think we should move on to now. Uh, William Kennedy with, uh, with the clear of the park had a valley in the village. Uh, had a valley in the village in Stowe. In Buckinghamshire, that that was cleared out for the most part, except for a small medieval church that was uh, within the area. While the earliest these earliest layouts were mostly geometrical, but they evolved into what we see today, and uh, and even and uh, and Kent himself even added serpentine pools to descending south. Uh, any uh, questions? about any of this? So 
he focused on constructing buildings instead of paintings? Yeah, he actually he, he fo- yeah he actually focused more on the interiors and uh, and even the design plans of multiple buildings. As I stated, he usually focused on on uh, the on Gothic style, Baroque, uh, uh, and uh, Palladianism, Palladianism. As for the Elysian Fields, uh, some of the temples, they uh, it, there's actually three uh, unique ones within it. One, of, the first of these temples is known as the Temple of Ancient Virtue. It's around classical structure that's based similarly on the uh, temple of Vesta at Tivoli. Uh, uh, Trish, you mind uh, giving us some more further insight on, on this temple? Yeah, so the Temple of Ancient Virtue was built by William Kent in around 1737, and it was actually based on the Temple of the Vesta. So since it's based on the Temple of the Vista in Tivoli. Unfortunately, the Tivoli was burnt in the sake of Rome by the Gauls, and it got its name because of its round shape. Yeah, and it was honoring the four great Greek men. So if Bonica wants to go in more depth of the Greek. Yeah, of course. So I just want to quickly touch upon um, these structures inside the Temple of Ancient Virtue. Um, So inside were the statues of Homer, Socrates, Lysurgis, and Epaminondas, and they represented the greatest poet, philosopher, lawgiver, and general, respectively, of the ancient world. So the Temple of Ancient Virtue um, houses these Greeks, which are preeminent in their own fields. We have the general, Epaminondas, who was largely responsible for breaking the military dominance of Sparta and um, brought permanent balance of power back to the Greek states. Um, Then we have the legislator, Lysurgis, who was credited with establishing the the military-oriented reformation of the Spartan society. Then we have um, the poet, Homer, who was attributed to writing um, the Odyssey and the Iliad, two really significant works um, in our history that have had a major impact on other great works of literature throughout our history. And then we have the philosopher Socrates, who is known as the father of Western philosophy for his contributions to the development of ancient Greek philosophy. So the Temple of Ancient Virtue resembles a mausoleum. And so, yeah, there's also a Temple of Modern Virtue. And this temple was right next to the Temple of Ancient Virtue. It was situated just to the south of Ancient Virtue. The comparison is unavoidable. The modern convinced as a ruin that decayed badly and there's only a few traces left. There's like walls poking out of the soil here and there. This was less refined Gothic style as well as more overbuilt as a ruin. So um, it's interesting that you mentioned that Gothic style. I kind of want to get into that a little bit because there, that did play a part, I believe, in the 
deeper meaning of these temples. So Gothic, Gothic architecture um, is an architectural style that isn't very prominent anymore um, just because it was more prevalent in Europe from the late 12th to 16th century. Um, and it survived into the 17th and 18th century, but it evolved into a Romanesque-like architecture and then was soon succeeded by um, Renaissance architecture. But the architecture um, of these temples carries much of the meaning in Stowe's comparison of ancient and modern virtue um, in the sense that there's a juxtaposition um, of gothic and classical styles that creates like this visual pun sort of speak between a ruined temple and ruined virtue but moreover downhill from the temple of modern virtue and ancient virtue um, across a small stream there's the temple of british worthies which is a semicircular structure that had 16 niches each containing a bust of a british notable um, these statues looked uphill to their ancient predecessors, and the significance of the architectural style and topographical placement of this ensemble is further enhanced by Kent's choice of inscription. Um, it's interesting to note that Queen Anne wasn't amongst the British um, worthies because she was the last Stuart monarch of um, Great Britain, and I'll get into that in a second. Um, but 18th century viewers would have noticed these emissions and grasped their anti-Catholic, anti-Stuart message. So um, I'm going to touch a little bit more on the, um, the British Worthy Temple. Um, for those listening, I'm going to give you kind of just some more visual description. It's like a curved wall with a series of pedimented niches and rusticated arches, each enclosing a portrait bust of a worthy. Um, and in the center is a high-stepped pyramid with an oval niche. The Temple of British Worthies features 16 busts. To the left, we have Alexander Pope, Sir Thomas Gresham, Inigo Jones, John Milton, William Shakespeare, John Locke, Sir Isaac Newton, and Francis Bacon, all famous for their thoughts and ideas. Then to the right, we have Sir John Bernard, John Hampton, Sir Francis Drake, Sir, Sir Walter Raleigh, King William III, Queen Elizabeth I, Prince Edward, and King Alfred, all known for their actions. And then there's a final bust of Mercury, god of financial gain, commerce, and luck, that sits high in the middle. And we also have to take into account that these fields were landscaped in the 1730s, and they're not only indicative of their garden design theory, but also of Lord Cobham's political views and actions. Um, so Lord Cobham played a role in this design. Something notable about um, this temple is that Queen Anne is not amongst the British worthies. So... Um, Queen Anne, she was born to um, she was born on February 6, 1665, to parents James, King James II, and Anne Hyde. Um, she became a queen upon William's death in March 1702. 
Um, and from the first, she was motivated largely by an intense devotion to the Anglican Church, and she detested Roman Catholics. Anne was Queen of England, Scotland, and Ireland from March 8, 1702 until May 1, 1707. Um, and she, under the Acts of the Union, the kingdoms of England, Scotland, united as a single sovereign, and that became Great Britain which she was still queen of when they united. So she started her reign as queen of England, Scotland, and Ireland, but then she ended it as the queen of Great Britain. And she was the last Stuart monarch. So I think pretty significant historical figure. I did find that Lord Cobham had been dismissed from Queen Anne's army and was among those Whigs who came to oppose Sir Robert Walpole's ministry. Um, however, the choice of figures for the temple in particular, um, especially the omission of Queen Anne, underscores the point that the message of these figures is anti-Stuart, anti-Catholic, and pro-British. So we kind of get an idea of how Lord Cobham was feeling when he was helping design this um this temple moving forward um there are some things to think about after hearing about all these topics collectively you know regarding the elysian gardens or the elysian fields so when we read stowe's elysian fields do we unpack its message any differently than we would that of a literary text or painting? Actually, uh, no. Actually, I think that uh, reading a garden is similar to uh, uh, reading, uh, just as similar to reading a text or painting as well. Uh, judging by uh, art, uh, judging by what we've read, uh, what we've learned, art is basically uh, uh, art can be abstract or or even non-representational. I believe that this. Uh, I believe that the concepts presented in uh, in the uh, in these English gardens are are slightly more abstract, and uh, by uh, by walking through them and 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 seeing their contents, we can understand uh, understand the ideas of what they're meant to represent, and therefore. Uh, we are able to uh, we are able to uh, sort of read them as they say uh, more more fluently. I completely agree. I want to say that um, like viewing a painting and looking at its contents and its details, um, and then using that to figure out kind of how the artist felt or like the deeper meaning behind the paintings with based on like their at the paintings attributes you can do the same with a garden um but it's more visual i feel like a painting or like a literal text can still give off a message that the fields will give you too i completely agree couldn't have said it better um is reading a garden like reading a book honestly I feel like it is because a garden also has its history background, just like a book would. 
I feel like reading the garden isn't like reading a book unless it's like a picture book. I just feel like a garden is more visual. Like there's more to take in. There are more, there's more there that, that a, reading a book won't give you, you know? And then there's also like the experience. Uh, yeah, I believe that uh, these, uh, that the concept of read that uh, similar to reading a book, uh, these uh, these gardens can be read similarly as uh, as Trish said. Uh, these you can uh, so uh, these gardens have histories, and uh, similarly, uh, sort of the sort of the books that we usually read. There's sometimes a uh, sometimes and and just like the book, they're just like books, they have deeper meanings. So uh, by understanding that, we can understand uh, these uh, gardens. Um, what sorts of gardens can be read and are there limits to the kinds of messages a garden or a landscape can convey? Well, hmm. I believe that these, uh, that uh, pretty much any garden can be read, but uh, gardens like these, per se, uh, per, uh, provide more, a more uh, more artistic and more abstract message. Usually, the uh, gardens we read are more uh, non-representational. They usually just uh, usually just provide. They they're usually just uh, uh, just designs and usually just uh, show uh, just the beauty of what man can do. Uh, these English gardens, on the other hand, uh, show a. Uh, Greater messages as to what uh, as to what land landscape can convey. I believe that with uh, I believe that as long as it's capable within uh, with the uh, within uh, art within mankind's interaction with nature, I believe that mankind can actually uh, can convey uh, uh, just as great, if not greater, messages than the uh, than those provided by these English gardens. Well, I think we've reached a, a pretty good amount of time today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Veronica and Tricia. Thank you so much again for having us. Thank you. This concludes the Exploring Art podcast. Subscribe for just subscribe to Exploring Art podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please join us soon, and remember to stay curious.